Well, it's great to be with you this morning. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18 as we continue our study in the life of David. Uh, We encourage everyone every week to bring a Bible. You can use your phone. You can follow along with sermon notes. Uh, You can use a paper Bible. If you don't have a Bible and you would like one, please stop by Guest Central after service and one of the people from our team would love to help you find that. Uh, 1 Samuel is the ninth book of the Bible and uh, we are going through this seven-week series leading up to Easter talking about this man by the name of David. And you might recognize David as the guy who has has that very ripped statue um, from Michelangelo. And uh, you might recognize him from the story of David and Goliath, which we talked about last week. And today we're talking about kind of maybe a lesser known part of David's life. And so I invite you, 1 Samuel 18 is where we're going to be today. We're going to try to actually get through chapter 20. So we're going to hit the fast forward button quite a bit throughout this morning's message. But as you're turning there, I want you to think about if you know someone, or maybe you have someone in your own life who has what might be called indistinguishable qualities, that there's something about a person that you can't maybe put your thumb on it. I don't know how they are so kind or why they are the way that they are. I'm not talking about the bad qualities. I'm talking about the good ones. And you ever have those people where you just don't know how they got to be that way? Like, where does this kindness or this graciousness or this patience evolve from? Clearly, they don't have kids, so they can't have that much patience, right, at that point. And so there's this whole idea of one of those people, man, what makes them them that seems like it's hard to put our finger on it? Week one, we talked about how David was chosen because of his heart, that as we live in the kingdom of God back uh, as they did back then and we do today, God is more concerned about the state and the condition of our hearts more than anything else. Last week, we tackled that big story of a young shepherd boy who conquered a physical giant and that it's not about a giant that represents problems in life, but rather that when we are weak, if we are faithful to God, he will make us strong. And today, we are continuing to see that David has these inexpressible qualities. What makes David, David? What is it about him that allows him to stay strong, firm, faithful when everything in life seems to be spiraling out of control? And almost at this point, we've said this series is about David, but these first couple weeks, there's this other kind of key character. His name is King Saul. He was the guy who was on the throne of Israel that God had said, hey, as soon as you die, as soon as you pass on, this boy by the name of David is going to take your place. Not even your own son, not even your own family, but someone else because he has a heart towards me. And what we're going to see today is how David versus Saul, and Saul has this pride and jealousy that is starting to build up within them. And it's something that plagues us all, that as long as we live, as long as humankind habitates this earth, pride and jealousy will always exist. And here's why. It's because we have a tendency to forget, do we not, who is actually in charge and who is truly Lord of our lives. And when we forget that, that's when we begin to see these things such as pride and jealousy build up. First Samuel chapter 18, we're starting in verse 6. You can follow along with me. For this series, something we're trying out is we are giving you the reference. We're not putting the words on the screen. That's why we're saying bring your own word of God. Bring your own sword with you. And you can follow along with us. Starting in verse uh, 6 this morning. It says, so when the men returned home after David had killed the Philistine, this is referring to the battle with Goliath, the woman came out from the town of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with timbrels and lyres. I don't know what either of those are, but you know they have instruments with them there. And they sang this country song. Saul has slain his, ten th- his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. I don't know why I use an accent, but that's just the way I read it in my mind. It says Saul was very angry 
highlight that, that Saul was angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They had credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Your translation might say a jealous eye on David. Continuing in verse 10, it says, The next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house, and while David was playing the lyre as he usually did, Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. When Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with David. Make point of that. It's going to come up several times. The Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So when he sent David away from him and gave him a command over a thousand men, and David led the troops in their campaigns, and in everything he did, he did with great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all of Israel and Judah loved David because he had led them in their campaigns. So we get introduced. The, the battle with Goliath has kind of stopped. And so they, they, they march back into town. They're getting the parade, right? After a team wins a championship or whatever, the city throws them a parade. So they're coming back from this massive victory. Their enemies, the Philistines, for many, many years were the biggest threat to the people of Israel. And David comes in like a hero that we all need, a little shepherd from Bethlehem, and he saves the day. And they come back into town. And so at this point, all the ladies are in, like, they are, they are hot and bothered, if you know what I'm saying. Like, they don't know what to do with themselves because of the new kid on the block type of deal. And so he comes in and they've got this song. And what they're doing is they're singing the praises of both Saul and David. But they're making one key distinction. They're saying that David killed tens of thousands. Saul only killed just the handfuls of thousands. And my thing with this is at this point, Saul had a lot to be thankful for. He had a lot to take pride in in his own life. He still had the palace. He had many, many beautiful wives, it said, which sounds more like a curse than it is a blessing, but that's one of the things that it talks about. And it talks about how he had unlimited resources, and yet the one thing he chooses to focus on was this song by people who don't give him as much credit as they do to David. What it reminds me of is uh, those goat debates that we have today. You guys, you know, the goat debate, the greatest of all time. Like when you want to know who is the greatest blank, and whether it's a sport or it's, a, it's a, a, a something that has to do with maybe your line of work, you want to know who is the greatest of all time. You take two people who are at the top and you try to say, okay, well, who's the best? And so one of the most common goat debates is in men's basketball, right? And usually it's like, okay, well, who's the greatest of all time? Is it MJ or is it LeBron James? LeBron just, you know, did the scoring record, the rings, the titles, the games, all that type of stuff. So on the count of three, if you are involved in the heat in this, I just wanted you to shout out, who do you think the GOAT is between LeBron or MJ? Ready? One, two, three. That's right, Kobe Bryant. Well done, church. But that's why we get all heated, right? When you have these GOAT debates, what you're not doing is taking Michael Jordan and pitting him against like Ramon J. Stevenson. And some of you are like, does that guy exist? It's like, yeah, he does. But there's a good chance you don't know. That's not what's happening here. They're saying Saul is a great warrior. He's a great leader. He's a great king. David just happens to be a little bit better. And he's filled, it says, with jealousy and rage and fear. Do we not do this too? Do we not have the tendency to focus on 
the little bit of life that is going wrong? Do we overlook the 90% that is going right to zero in on the 10%? Do we overlook the 5% that's going wrong and make that the, the whole point of our thoughts and our minds and our stress and our, the 1% that is our line that consumes all that we are and Saul is essentially being similar to us because he is saying, no, 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 I need to be the center of attention. This is our first fill in the blank for us this morning. As we're talking about pride and jealousy, how does it develop and what does it do in our own lives? It's this, is that when we make everything about us, Pride and jealousy are sure to follow. That's what essentially Saul is doing. He's saying, that song, you're only crediting me with the thousands, you're giving David the tens of thousands. They're like, that's the truth. And he's like, yeah, yeah, can you just like take out the tens and then at least make us equal? When we make it all about us, everything in life about pride and jealousy are sure to follow. When the focus is you and yours, enough will never be enough. And so at this point, Saul forgot who was actually king and lord. He forgot whose appreciation he's supposed to chase. He's forgetting whose uh, admiration means the most in his own life. He was living for the approval of men, not God's any longer. And that is why Saul lost the throne. And in chapters 18 through 20, what we're going to see is Saul willingly forgets that God has already anointed David as king, that God has already sustained David through multiple battles, that God has already dismissed Saul as king to his heart and his action, and yet he refuses to take notice because he's chasing after an outward praise. What we're going to see for David, at least this part of his story, it's going to change next week, but this part in David's life, he has this inward humility, almost as if to say we ourselves would do well to constantly concern ourselves with the state of our hearts as much as we do as the actions of others. Picking back up in verse 17 this morning. says, so Saul said to David, here is my older daughter Merab. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul, uh, Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. AKA, I'm going to keep sending David into the battle until somebody takes this bro out. He's this upset at this point. He's this jealous. But David said to Saul, who am I? And what is my family or my clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? So when the time came for Merab, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Meloah. So Saul's daughter, Michal, though, was now in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him, so that the hand of the Philistines might be against him. So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Just real quick, if you have been following along and you were with us last week, you know that there's something out of line here. Because one of the prizes for the man who took down Goliath we talked about this, it was sex, money, and power. The first thing Saul says, I will give you unlimited wealth. And when nobody wanted to do anything with that, he says, okay, I will make you a part of my family. You can go choose any of my daughters and you get to now belong to this royal kingdom. David has already won that battle and received that prize. And yet Saul is going back on that promise. He has his daughter Merab and he, he says, this is who you have now been, been given. And at the last minute, he says, uh, actually... On second thought, I'm going to give her somewhere else. And David's response is peculiar to me because he doesn't fight back. So you promised, man. You said that if I took down that big giant, I'd get to be in your family. He just says, who am I? You are the king. I am nothing. I don't even deserve to be in your family. Just thanks for the opportunity. There's an immense humility 
In David's life against to his opponent who he doesn't even know is gunning for him in this moment. And David's, or sorry, Saul's daughter, McCall, catches David's eye and vice versa. And she's going to become a key component here this morning. Picking up in verse 24. It says, so when Saul's servant told him what David had said, Saul replied, say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride other than 100 Philistine foreskins. You heard that correct. This isn't like an allegory. That is the price, the going rate for the, king, uh, the king's daughter so that he may take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hand of the Philistines. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men with him and went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. They counted out the full number to the king so that, the, so that David might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter Michal in marriage. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David, there it is again, and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became still more afraid. Your translation is still more jealous of him. And he remained his enemy the rest of his days. This is the big tension in this story, is what we're going to see. Again, the focus is not David. It's how God is protecting and sustaining his servant in this. Saul has this immense pride and jealousy that is only beginning to build and build and build against, against David. And, and, and God is protecting David almost without him even knowing it. And instead of addressing the pride himself, Instead of taking the jealousy and learning from his mistakes, Saul seems to want to double down on it. Instead of protecting himself against it, he uses it as fuel. And in this passage, there's many assertions made that David's success four times is mentioned because he is with God, God is with him. Three times it's mentioned that God is specifically with David. Six times it mentions that David is loved, that everyone seems to be infatuated with David. Uh, uh, Jonathan, early on in the chapter, uh, who is Saul's son, Michal, Saul's daughter, the people of Israel, even the Lord himself. But it's being made abundantly clear that as David is successful, it's not because of anything other than that the Lord is with him. It's not the other way around. It's not God loves him because David is successful. Rather, it's David is being successful in his life because he is choosing to honor God above all else. And all that seems to do is drive Saul crazy. Because that's what pride and jealousy do. Pride and jealousy often cloud our judgment. When you begin to have pride and jealousy creeping into your heart and mind, it often clouds our judgment. Anyone in here who's, who's raised kids you know that all logic and reason go out the window when a kid acts out of jealousy, right? If you catch your kid maybe stealing something from a sibling or someone else uh, in maybe their class, and you say, hey, why did you steal little Stevie's toy? Hey, little Lily, why did you, why did you take that stuffy? That's what they're known in our house, that stuffed animal from your friend. You know what it's never? It's never like a well-thought-out reason. It's never, well, well, Stevie was being mean to Timmy, so I took one of Timmy's toy to give it to Stevie for vengeance. It's never that. It's never like, well, she has a bunch and, and that person over there doesn't have any, so I took it to be a good mediator and good friend. It's always, why did you take the toy? And they say, because I wanted it. And that's it. It's like, why, wait, so, so, so that is the logic and reasoning going, because you were jealous of what somebody else has, that just, in your mind, you were just like, okay, cool, what I do is I just take things. 
And that's essentially what Saul is doing. He's jealous of David. So now he's trying to say, I want my kingdom back. I want my people back. So he's going to go to extreme measures. Instead of learning from his mistakes or David's actions, he doubles down. So David beats Goliath, takes down this giant of a man that nobody would face, even Saul himself. And the prize was one of his daughters to belong to the royal family. The first daughter selected gets taken from David, given to somebody else. And Saul then finds out that he has the hots, so to speak, for his daughter, Michal. And so then it's like, okay, well, I'll use this to my advantage. And he says, before you can have McCall's hand in marriage, I need a hundred things from you. And David's like, great, you name the price. A hundred what? hundred things. Like what kind of things? Male things. Like what specific? Those male things. He's like, I need a hundred of them. And so David's like, cool, I'll do it better. I'll go get 200. So he comes back and it says they counted them out before Saul. Which means they did the deed, brought them back in a bag. One, two, three, all the way up to 200. And Saul's intention was clear though. This wasn't because he had a weird thing going on. It was because he was like, okay, well, if Goliath didn't work, I'm going to play the law of averages. There's no way you could take out 100 men and bring back 100 things for me. The pride and jealousy had clouded Saul's judgment that he was willing to kill someone off. Because pride and jealousy often become our own worst enemies when we can't shake it. If we skip over to chapter 19, it only gets worse from here. In the life of Saul. Starting in verse 1 and 2, then skipping to verse 10, it says, So Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. At this point, Saul's just like, okay, we tried the one way to not be on our hands. Let's just straight up have a, have a hit. Call the mafia, call the Sopranos, get them over here, and let's see if they can, you know, get a lead pipe and do what they do best. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David. In chapter 18, you can read all about how David and Jonathan, they were BFFs. But he warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow and go into hiding and stay there. Skip with me to verse 6. Jonathan goes to try to console with his father. It says, so Saul listened to Jonathan and took an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation and brought him to Saul. And David was with Saul as before. It seems like there's a little bit of reconciliation happening. But once more, war broke out and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before them. But an evil spirit of the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. And while David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to pin him to the wall. Again, this is the third opportunity with his spear. But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. And that night, David made good on his escape. Saul's like, the 104 skins plan didn't work. Let's just do straight up hit jobs. And his first thought is to get David's best friend, Jonathan. He knows they're close. He knows that they, that, that, that they hang out, that they run together. He knows that they've been in war together. And so that they're probably sharing a lot of life. And he goes to his own son and says, son, do me a favor. Take out your best friend. And I don't think it was as simple as, hey, can you just go kill David for me? I would like to assume Saul was at least a little more shrewd. Hey, Jonathan, let's have a talk, bud. Come on in, sit down, 
So you, you remember how, how, how God kind of anointed David king, right? And Jonathan's all like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Saul's like, okay, so think about this, boy. I am king now. Who is due to become king after me? And as he's talking to him, his hand is getting a firmer grip on his shoulder. This is your throne. This is your place. You have the right to wear this crown next. Are you really going to let you and a friend get in the way of your power? Take some of my best men. He's just a friend. But the kingdom lasts forever. And Jonathan has enough wherewithal, he has enough wisdom to know that's not how I operate. That's not how I work. The pride and jealousy has swelled so much within Saul's life, it leads to a greater poor choice. Because that's what pride and jealousy does. If it clouds our judgment long enough, it then leads to poor choices. That pride and jealousy breed poor choices. If we were to say, hey, take a moment and want you to reflect on your own life and write down when you've been in a season or a moment or a decision-making process and pride and jealousy were involved, are you going to be proud of the decision you made or not? Chances are we're all sitting here being like, yeah, I've been there. I've done things that I regret big time when pride and jealousy were at the forefront of our mind. Haven't, haven't we all been there before? And when we talk about scripture, one of the things we say when we talk about scripture is that never put your, your, yourself and say, okay, David's the hero, therefore I'm David and I'm going to put myself in the story. Our better notion is to take the person who is wrong or the villain or the people who are disobeying God and plug ourselves in there and say, okay, this is probably where it becomes more realistic. Because in this story, how many of us, when something is taken from us that we've earned or God, respond with, don't worry about it. But when somebody threatens us or our livelihood, when our toes get stepped on, when our ego gets trampled, how many of us try to double down on that? You see, it's very easy. It's almost more realistic to take ourselves and say, man, I have been like Saul. It's so accurate, is it not? And I'm not saying you've tried to spear someone to a wall. You probably don't even own a spear in the first place. But out of pride and jealousy, have you ever taken a shot at somebody? Out of pride and jealousy, have you gossiped about somebody who took your promotion? Out of pride and jealousy, have you slandered somebody because they got the spot that you thought you deserved? Out of pride and jealousy, have you withheld maybe care or compassion because they just seemed like they were rubbing it in? Out of pride and jealousy, is there a strained relationship, perhaps in a, in a sibling rivalry to this day? Because it has clouded our judgment. This phrase in here that says a tormenting spirit, chapter 18, now in chapter 19, it's actually not a spirit that God sent. Rather, what it is, is, is God having removed himself from the life of Saul. It's very similar to in the book of Exodus when it says that, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What it means is God has removed himself so much that this idea of common grace, that God is caring for people who don't even love him. He is taking care of protecting people to an nth degree to some point. God has fully removed himself from Saul's life, that his clouded judgment and his poor actions have now resulted in an evil spirit that is attacking him regularly. As one pastor puts it this way, his name is David Guzik. He says, decomposers of the mind, though helped forward by the agency of Satan, commonly owe their origin to men's own sins and follies. 
Saul's fear and jealousy made him a torment to himself so that he could not sit in his house without a javelin in hand, pretending it was for his preservation, but designing it for David's destruction. When pride and jealousy plague our own kingdoms, we have a tendency to resort to nasty behavior, do we not? So the question becomes, so how do we respond? What do we do with this? Picking up in verse 11 of chapter 19. So Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through a window and he fled to escape. Then Michal took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at the head. When Saul sent men to capture David, Michal said, he is ill. (coughs) Then Saul sent men back to see David and told them, bring him to me in his bed so that I may kill him. But when the men entered, there was the idol in the bed and the head was of some goat's hair. Saul said to Michal, why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? And Michal told them, he said to me, let me get away. Why should I be killed or why should I kill you? When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done. And then he went to Samuel and Naoth, and they stayed stayed with him there. If you skip to chapter 20, that was with McCall. Then Jonathan gets brought in. Then David fled from Naoth and, and Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father? Why is he trying to kill me? Never. Jonathan replied, you are not going to die. Look, my father does not do anything great or small without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? This isn't so. But David took an oath and said, your father knows very well that I found favor in your eyes, as he has said to himself. Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only one step between me and death. And Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I will do it for you. The foreskins didn't work. The spear didn't work. So now he just opts for trained soldiers to ambush his house. Saul said, I tried to be subtle. I tried to do it so it wasn't obvious. Now I'm just really going to just take the guy out. Just go kill the guy. I don't care what it takes. Go to his house, break in, in the middle of the night, stab him to death, whatever you got to do. Just get rid of this man. And it says that McCall, uh, uh, Saul's daughter, David's wife, hid it with false idols. And the question is, the king of Israel was supposed to be the guy directing and guiding people into the presence of God. Why is there idols in that house to begin with? I like to believe and speculate because Saul is very aware that God is no longer with him. that the successes that he once had because God was fighting through him is now gone. And so he's turned to anything and everything that will aid him in this problem. So much so that he's turned to false and pagan gods to worship, to hopefully garner their favor, and they've been unsuccessful. And so Saul's own daughter grabs one of these idols off the shelf, pulls a Ferris Bueller, tucks it in the bed with a little goat hair, and then helps David escape. Jonathan and McCall both tried to speak sense into their father to no avail. And David had to escape both times. See, when it comes to pride and jealousy in our life, this is what we all need. Is that we all need others to speak into our lives. 
But we still have to listen, do we not? You can have somebody, you can grant somebody the ability to speak into your life when you're getting off track. You can give somebody the opportunity to say, hey, you kind of need to address or fix this here, but we still have to choose to listen to them. There's this word that comes up, the word love and the word covenant. We sang, used that word covenant in the song we just sang, but this, this, this Hebrew word chesed. And it's a word that means covenant or devoted love in the Old Testament. And it speaks to twofold. Number one, it speaks to the love that Michal and Jonathan had for David. This, this unashamed, devoted love that I will do whatever you need or want me to do. But that same word speaks to the love that God has for you and I. It's a covenant. It's way different than a contract. A contract says, if you do A, B, and C, I will do X, Y, and Z. That's what a contract is, right? Anyone who, who works, that's, you're, you're on like a contract. You show up between these hours, do these jobs, and you will walk out with a paycheck. A covenant says, I will fulfill my end regardless if you fulfill yours. And that is God's love for you and I. That is God's love for David. And that is also Jonathan and McCall's love for their friend and their husband. They're devoted regardless of what happens, regardless of how this may come back. I mean, regardless of what it takes, I will pursue you out of love. It is a chesed. It is a devoted love. It is a covenant. And God is being committing to David saying, I will protect you regardless of the cost. I will save you regardless of the cost. In the same way that God some 2,000 years ago says, out of my love, I will save you regardless the cost. I will send my son Jesus who will live a perfect life, who will die on the cross and raise three days later that whoever believes in him shall not perish and have everlasting life. For God so loved, for God so has said, the Greek word agape, and that is God's love for you. He is committed, devoted to loving you, but the question becomes, will you listen to it? Will we respond to it or will we kind of play the fool like Saul and go through life thinking, I'm the king of my own life. I'm the Lord of my kingdom. I call the shots. And so, so, so Jonathan and David, they come up with this plan. There's this dinner. And then, and then Jonathan said, my, my, Saul's going to kill you, bro. Like, let's just call it for what it is. Don't come to the dinner. We're going to come up with an excuse. And so then he says, and maybe you're familiar with this story. He's like, so, so afterwards, I'm going to go shoot some arrows. You're going to hide out in the field. And if I shoot an arrow uh, in front of you, that means the coast is clear. But if I shoot an arrow past you, that means you need to run and flee. And so, so, so Jonathan goes out with one of uh, the servants, and he shoots the arrow, and he yells to the boy. He says, the, no, no, the arrow has gone further. Keep going, which is David's sign for him to take up and leave. The protection David has now received is from Saul's son, Saul's daughter, the prophets of Israel, his own discernment. And it's all an act of God saying, because of my chesed for you, David, I will keep you safe. Story ends with this, chapter 20, verses 30 through 34. So Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse, that's David, to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at, to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill 
David. As if it wasn't clear enough, it finally clicked for him. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger, and on that day, second day of the feast, he did not eat because he was grieved by his father's shameful treatment of David. Imagine you're the anointed king of Israel, and the current king is off his rocker. You've been faithfully committed to God, and all you find yourself in this moment is on the run again. Because the pride and jealousy of one man is making your life absolutely miserable. What goes through your heart? What goes through your mind? There are people who who attend the church, and you might have come in with that feeling that the pride and jealousy and actions of another person makes you feel like you are on the run in your own life. That you are searching for meaning and safety and security. You see, when pride and jealousy cloud our judgment and leads to poor decisions, it has rippling effects negatively on other people. And so if you find yourself here this morning and you feel like you're on the run, so to speak, know you're not alone. Know that we are with you as your pastors. We are with you as a church. Know that God's chesed for you is real and active. But I also want to flip the script. If you are here this morning and there has been pride or jealousy plaguing your own heart and mind that your actions are causing pain and torment towards another person, number one, I'm going to say pastorally, stop. But secondly, I'm going to say God still has said you as well. He still desperately wants a right relationship with you. The question is, are you going to listen or not? Here's how we wrap up this story. What should David and Saul have done? That's the question I want to start by. What should David and Saul have done? David did probably what David should have done. He prays God. He remembers the protection. He stays humble. He's not vindictive. In some ways, he did what we ought to sometimes do. If you find yourself in a situation, it's just best to avoid toxic and dangerous people. God is not opposed to that. Proverbs chapter 22 says, Do not make friends with a hot-tempered and do not associate with an easily angered person or you may find yourself ensnared. David did what we ought to do in some of these situations. What should Saul have done, though? His life should have been full of change, repentance. He should have submitted to this counsel that came his way. He should have confessed, changed course. But Saul did not prepare himself against temptation He let the pride and jealousy grow. He put himself closer to the fire instead of putting himself closer to God and in a company of people that will help him be on the right track. So let me close with this then for all of us this morning. How do we fight off pride and jealousy in our own life? Number one is to humble ourselves before God. The number one thing we can do in life, my firm belief, is we can humble ourselves before God. David's response, who am I that I should belong to the kingdom? David was humble at this point in his life and in his heart. The definition of humility, I think it's accredited to C.S. Lewis, is humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's just thinking of yourself less. It's a beautiful, beautiful rendition of what humility is. David's at this point where there's something different about him. We don't know what it is, and it's his humility on display. That true humility, though, comes when we remember whose kingdom we live in and who is Lord of our lives. The second thing, though, that we would heed wisdom to, how do we fend off pride and jealousy, is to have helpful accountability with others. We talk about it here. The life of a disciple involves head knowledge, heart change, and helpful accountability. 
And you can come in this room and get head knowledge and maybe some heart change on a regular basis. But what we can offer in this room on a Sunday morning is helpful accountability. The people who you can sit down and talk. That's why we say get in a cohort, get in a group, get in an opportunity where somebody can speak into your life and hopefully you will listen. We want anyone and everyone who calls First Christian Church home to not just have more knowledge about God. We don't want them just to be changed by Jesus, but we want you to have relationship with other people. So that no matter what you are going through, you aren't going through it alone. And the third thing, how do we fend off pride and jealousy in our own life? It's simple. That remembering that we can't control how others respond, but we can control how we do. 1 Peter chapter 3 talks about never return evil with evil. Always return evil with good. And that's really, really hard. The brother of Jesus, half-brother at least of Jesus in James chapter 1 talks about consider it pure joy when you go through trials of many kinds. Trials are not fun, but they're a real part of life. Personal trials, mental trials, emotional trials. And through those trials, oftentimes we unfortunately have the negative effects of other people's choices in our life. You cannot control if people are going to be prideful or not. You cannot control if people are going to act jealously or not. You cannot control if people are going to be stupid or not. You can plan on that happening for sure. But you can always control how you respond. If you retaliate or not. Do you pursue humility? Do you listen to the wisdom of others? I'll close this morning with a quote from Dale Ralph Davis from his commentary on First Samuel, and he says this. He says, the means of deliverance must never eclipse the source of deliverance. And sometimes the deliverer makes that point abundantly obvious. And here's the point I want you to leave and walk away with this morning, is that sometimes the clearest evidence that God has not deserted you is not that you are successfully past your trial, but that you are still on your feet in the midst of it. Let's pray as we continue to worship this morning. Lord, we offer this time to you. We offer that you speak into our lives, our words, our generosity, our service, whatever it is that you have done in our lives, may we celebrate you for that. May we surrender to you anything that we need to surrender in this time. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you care for us. That whether the week has been good or we've made a string of choices that we might regret, we know that we are welcomed in your presence because we are not judged on our actions per se, but that if we believe that Jesus is Lord, we are welcomed into your kingdom, into your presence. And so may we remember that more than anything else. We love you. We praise you. Amen.